me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. In chapter 5, Pharaoh asked, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? And with each successive plague, God is bringing the picture of who He is into focus for Pharaoh. And yet the the response by Pharaoh and by Egypt continues to be rejection and hard hearts. Over the course of several weeks during this time period, Egypt has witnessed some powerful displays of God's majesty. They have seen the water reservoirs turn into blood throughout their land. They have had their entire land infested by frogs. Then came the plague of the mosquitoes, followed by the biting flies and insects. They lost many of their animals to the pestilence that came in the fifth plague. They, they have gone likely days with boils all over their body, including the animals, making them ill-equipped to do anything. And yet, up until this point, what we should note is that there has been no human death recorded. And so what I think is happening is that God, with each plague, is intensifying the effects of, the, of, of showing His power on Egypt. And so with the seventh plague, there will be for the first time recorded death of humans along with death of animals. We have seen the death of animals in the past, but now for the first time the death of humans are recorded. Let me read our text for us this morning. It begins in verse 13 of chapter 9 and it goes to the end of the chapter. Listen to the Word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses, but he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran, uh, ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. 
Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and hail ceased, and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. God continues to show His supreme power in these various plagues. And today, he, I think we're going to see that God shows His supreme power through delay. That is, by delaying to deliver His people, God is showing His supreme power. The warning is found in verses 13-21. through 21. Moses, again, is commanded by God to go before Pharaoh, probably meeting him in the palace. Remember, in the, past, in the first and the fourth plague, and the seventh plague, he meets Pharaoh at the water. Uh, I'm sorry, the first and the fourth, he meets him at the water. And then uh, he meets him in the palace for, for several of these other plagues. And here in the warning to Pharaoh, prior to the seventh plague, we have the clearest expression of what God is doing. It's found in verses 14 through 17. We have the clearest expression to Pharaoh of what God is doing. Look at verse 14. For this time, this is God speaking through Moses, This time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the the earth. God shows His supreme power in all the universe. He had done this before multiple times showing Pharaoh His power. But notice He continues in verse 15 by showing that He has power in reserve. God has power in reserve. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God's saying... I have much more that I could be doing to you that I have withheld. And, and so I'm going to show you my power once again, but recognize that if I wanted to, I could cut you off from the earth by completely wiping you out. Look at the first part of verse 16. Because we, sh- we see that Pharaoh's authority is derived from God. Pharaoh's authority is derived from God. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain. Here's what God is saying to Pharaoh. I am allowing you to remain. I've allowed you to raise up to a place of, of power. In fact, that's what, how Paul talks about this in Romans 9 when he quotes from this passage. He says that, Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this per- very purpose, to make my name known. God raised up Pharaoh. Pharaoh's power is derived from God. And then the, the second part of verse 16, God's delay and showing greater power is a part of His plan. God's delay in showing greater power is a part of His plan. Verse 16, But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you My power and in order to proclaim My name through all the earth. 
So, verse 15, I could have wiped you out off the face of the earth. I could have done that. But I have allowed you to remain. Why? So that you would see My power. So that you would know that My name is to be proclaimed in all the earth. So here we have a dialogue between God and Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is supposed to understand that these plagues are not designed to be an annoyance but that they are intensifying, they are increasing in nature so that they will do damage to the Egyptians themselves and so that Pharaoh will see who is really in charge. God's power is not like the gods that Pharaoh serves. God's power is not like Pharaoh's power. God's power is limitless. And as it increases in power, as these plagues increase in intensity, Pharaoh starts to see this more clearly. The next thing we see is that God is merciful even in judgment. Notice verse 16 again. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain. God's saying, I am giving you an opportunity and the people of Egypt an opportunity to repent. You actually have an opportunity to repent. I am delaying for your sake. We'll talk about this more later when we consider the the um, the seventh I think it's the sixth or seventh bold judgment that we're going to that's going to come during the time of the tribulation. God is often this way in judgment. He gives opportunity for his people, or for people I should say, to repent. He he gives them an opportunity, even here, to avoid the fullest measure of his wrath. Remember, everyone who was out in the field who didn't listen to his warning were going to be killed. If, however, they brought in their animals, if the servants came in from the field, they would be spared. But those who were left out in the field would be killed. And so even in that, God's giving an escape, a way of escape in a time of judgment. The final thing that we see in this dialogue is found in verse 17, and that is that Pharaoh's lack of submission is rooted in pride. Pharaoh's lack of submission is rooted in pride. We could say all of Egypt's lack of submission. Still, verse 17, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Pharaoh's problem, his reasoning for not submitting to the true and living God, the one who's bringing about these plagues, is because of pride. He's exalting himself over God. And God is bringing him to his knees, so to speak. So we have the warning in verses 13 through 17. Then we have the description of the plague in verses 18 through 21. Just to give you an idea of how bad this hailstorm was. Maybe, maybe thinking about a, the worst hailstorm in our history might give you some perspective. The worst one in Michigan's history was in March of 1991 near Monroe, where there was hail to be measured at four inches in diameter. In, in Egypt, however, hailstorms were very rare. Uh, in fact, the average rainfall in Cairo today is one inch per year in contrast to what we experience in our area, which is about three inches of precipitation per month. So, so they're one inch per year is how much rainfall they get. So for them to get a hailstorm is extremely rare. A hailstorm of this magnitude in our area would be newsworthy, but in Egypt it would be unprecedented something that was never seen before. And that's the way that this hailstorm is 
described. Look at verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So from its very beginning, all the way till the time of Pharaoh, all the way until the time of this writing, Moses writing this, there's not been a hailstorm like this in, in Egypt. It's unprecedented in their history. This particular hailstorm is important because it was predicted by God and it was avoidable. Pharaoh could have let the people go. Pharaoh could have avoided the effects of the plague by having all of his servants and all animals brought into uh, underneath a shelter. Verses 19-21, through 21, we see this act of mercy by God by allowing this protection. In the previous plagues, the warning was given to Pharaoh and, and he individually had a choice that could result in the plague being avoided. But here, the whole nation has a choice to avoid the effects of the plague. They could just move their animals and themselves. Obviously, that, that wouldn't help their crops. That wouldn't help their trees. But they could, they could uh, spare damage to themselves and their animals. And we know that this offer is made because apparently some people take him up on it. Verse 20, The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the Lord, the word of the Lord, made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. So apparently some people heard about this warning and heeded the warning. They actually brought themselves and their animals into shelter. So there's the description of the miracle. The miracle itself is described in verses 22 through 26. Verses 22 to 26. Obviously, Pharaoh again is unwilling to let Israel go. So Moses is this this, uh, servant through whom God is going to cause this plague to come. And so in verse 22, Moses raises his staff. Verse 23 is actually where it happens. God tells him in verse 22. And in verse 24, we see this unprecedented hailstorm. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Notice the effects of this hailstorm in verse 25. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. So again, we see God's distinguishing judgment coming down on Egypt itself as He does in the last four plagues. That, it, that, that He makes a distinction between Pharaoh's people and God's people. It would be more likely, by the way, to have rain or hailstorms up in Goshen. Goshen's in the north where it's less like desert. It's, it's actually a great grazing area, which is why they would... Why uh, Israel was up there, they were handling all the livestock or, or a lot of the livestock of, of Egypt. And so it was more likely that it came there, but instead the storm comes directly on the, the desert-like area of, of uh, where Pharaoh and his people were. So God makes a distinction. There's no mention of magicians in this text as far as them trying to duplicate it. But we do have, in verses 27-32, through the plea for relief. This is what has been happening over the last several plagues. As Pharaoh starts to see the effects of the plague and to feel them himself, he asks for relief. Pharaoh had made some concessions before, but this is the starkest language that he uses. Look at verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people 
are the wicked ones. What is going on here? Has Pharaoh genuinely repented? Notice how he qualifies his confession. I have sinned this time. Ultimately, Pharaoh is not repenting, is he? He's not turning to faith in God. You realize that faith is a necessary corollary of repentance. A person who genuinely repents will genuinely believe, will genuinely express faith in God. Genuine repentance is always coupled with genuine faith. See, this is not genuine repentance. Pharaoh just wants to have the consequences of his sin removed. Look at verse 28. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Do you know people like this? Who have experienced the consequences of their sin and want to get out from under it, but don't want to bow their knee to the true and living God. They don't want to submit to Jesus Christ. That's Pharaoh. He just wants to get out from the effects of his sin. He's not willing to change his heart. And we know that because we know the rest of the story. And if we think carefully, we have lots of examples in Scripture of people who have admitted their sin, but who did not genuinely repent. Like Balaam. He admitted that he sinned in Numbers 22-34. But we know from the New Testament that he was not a believer. Achan in Joshua 7 admitted that he sinned and died as judgment for his sin. Saul in 1 Samuel 15, acknowledges his sin, but he was not a believer. Judas, remember, admitted his sin and even returned the money that he was given to betray Jesus. And we know that he was not a believer. Esau was sorrowful for his sin according to Hebrews chapter 12. And we know lots of people in our world who are often full of sorrow. But that kind of sorrow, Paul says, is a worldly sorrow. And that sorrow leads to what? leads to death. That doesn't lead to genuine repentance. So how do we know the difference? How do we know if we're looking at genuine repentance or worldly repentance? Genuine repentance leading to life and worldly repentance leading to death. How do we know? Or worldly sorrow leading to death. The answer is, we look at the fruit. What is the fruit? Jesus taught us that you will know a tree by its fruit. A good good tree will not bear bad fruit, and a bad tree will not bear good fruit. So we will know their repentance, we will know our repentance by our fruit. Godly sorrow leads to life. It leads to salvation according to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Because repentance is a change of view. It's a changing of our view away from sin and to God. So the fruit of our sorrow, the fruit of our repentance, ought to be salvation, sanctification, change. But notice the fruit of Pharaoh's sorrow in verse 30. Here's Moses. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord. And then verse 34, after the thunder and hail and and rain had ceased. Verse 34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned again. He sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Here's the fruit of Pharaoh's sorrow. It leads to further sin. It leads to a further pattern of sin. 
that, that he is a bad tree bearing bad fruit. And so this sorrow when he says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I am wicked is simply a worldly form of sorrow. And friends, you're going to see that in the people that you talk to at your work and in your family. That there will be times when you see signs of sorrow for what they have done. But ultimately, you will know them by their fruit. The response by Moses is found in verses 29 and 30. As soon as I go out of the city, Moses says, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer that you may know that the earth is the Lord. We should notice that Moses agrees to pray to God to ask for relief. Again, Moses doesn't just kind of wait around and say, well, God eventually will let it stop. Moses recognizes that even though God has a plan of when this plague will stop, he also recognizes that God uses means to accomplish His plan. And so he prays. He doesn't just wait around and say, well, God will cause it to stop at some point. He says, I will pray. And notice where he goes. Verse 29, as soon as I go out of the city, in verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh. That is, Moses goes out of the palace into the very hail that is destroying all the people and the animals and the crops and the trees. Moses goes to pray to God in the very place that has been causing death. He goes out in the field. And he prays to God knowing that this hail will not hurt him because God has a distinctive power. He is distinctive in how he, he brings about the effects of his plagues. And Moses trusts God. The effects of the hailstorm are found in verses 31 and 32, the effects of the hailstorm. Now the flax and barley were ruined for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. Was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripen late. Keep in mind that Egyptians were opposed to shepherding; they they didn't like to to handle cattle and and sheep and so on. They saw it as a task of weakness. They only did it out of obligation, and that is why when Israel comes along and builds up a great amount of people, they happily hand over that land and that responsibility. But their wheelhouse was crop farming. They loved to crop farm because they believed that they had the ears of the gods. That these gods would bring about fertility to their lands. And this was a great industry for them. And what we learn in these verses is that the, the flax and the barley were ruined from this hailstorm, as verse 31 tells us. Flax and barley were usually harvested in February in Egypt. And so this is probably right around the time of harvest, probably right before the time of harvest. They're already in bud and and before they can harvest them, they're ruined. However, in verse 32, we see that the wheat and the spelt that were normally, uh, they were normally uh, harvested at the end of March in Egypt were still okay because they hadn't come into to a full harvest. So perhaps what Pharaoh is thinking during this time is, well, they might have got some of my crops, but they didn't get all of them. And so I can continue to resist God. I can continue. I can still survive 
Even though God is bringing about all these devastating plagues on me, I've still got more crops that are coming. I'll be fine next month. Well, in verse 33, the plague is removed through the prayer of Moses. And then we see this, this, this uh, consistent or persistent response by Pharaoh in verses 34 through 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. When Pharaoh sees that the plague has stopped, just as he always does, he goes back to his hard heart. His pride gets in the way of reason. And because of that, he can't even make a wise choice for himself and for his nation. And that's because his heart is hard, just as God had planned it would be. That's what verse 35 says. It says, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, God told Moses that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. You go tell him to let my people go, but he's not going to listen to you. He will not obey me because I've hardened his heart. Pharaoh's doing exactly what God had planned. And this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is leading to his further foolish choices that result in greater devastation. And this is the blinding effect of sin, isn't it? It's the nature of of sin's blinding effect on us. That it deceives us into thinking that we're going to be okay. That, That we can just kind of allow this sin to reside in us. We can allow this sin to grow in us. We can, we'll be okay. For him, as the wheat and spell, they're still coming in. We're going to be fine. But sin is self-deceiving and self-destructive. And eventually, sin will find its way to the surface. And its effects will be experienced either in this life or the next, or both. Let me just leave you... Uh, Four points of application in closing. First, when God displays His power, He calls people to saving faith. When God displays His power, He calls people to saving faith. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. I said we would look at this this uh, judgment coming. Seventh bowl judgment during the time of the tribulation. Tribulation is still to come. It follows the rapture of Christ's church and last for seven years. Revelation chapter 16. This hailstorm in Egypt that we have been looking at this morning was unprecedented in human history. But, friends, it will pale in comparison to the hailstorm that will come on the earth during the time of the tribulation. And so, in a way, it provides for us a warning to flee the wrath of God. Look at chapter 16. In verse 21, we have this final tribulation judgment which culminates in the battle of Armageddon. Here, verse 21, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Based on uh, the study of Christian scientists, they believe that these hailstones of 100 pounds will be about the size of a beach ball. And notice what these people do, even though they recognize that this judgment comes from God. 
The second part of the verse. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail. They knew who it came from and they still wouldn't repent. And as John is explaining this, these horrifying events that will take place at the end of the tribulation, he pauses in the text to give us a reminder. Look at verse 15. He's explaining the battle of Armageddon, the, the last bowl judgment. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Who do you suppose is speaking here? Is it John? I have a red letter edition of the Bible, so whenever Christ speaks, it has His words in red. But this verse in, in my text is in black. But I would suggest to you that these should be in red. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said something very similar. We don't have time to turn there, but chapter 3, verse 3, to the church at Sardis. He says, get ready. Keep your clothes on. For when I come... And by the way, Jesus is the only person in all of Scripture to use the analogy of coming as a thief. And here, I think, is what Jesus is saying. Behold, I'm coming at a time when you don't expect it. Okay, so there are judgments coming and you need to be prepared for those judgments. So reader, that's why it's in parentheses. I think that's proper. It ought to be in parentheses. As he's explaining these judgments, stop and listen to what Jesus has to say for a second. Behold, I'm coming quickly. I can come at any time and you need to be ready. That's what the point of verse 15 is. The point is that we constantly need to be need to be reminded of God's coming judgment. And that if we live and we continue to live for the things of this world and we are following a self-destructive philosophy. But if we think biblically, we will recognize that all of these temporal things that the world offers will be destroyed with the tribulation judgments. So here's the encouragement. God is coming in judgment, so stay awake spiritually and be clothed and ready for the return of Christ. This ought to be our response when we look at these plagues in Exodus. There, these judgments are, are paling in comparison to the judgments that will come upon the earth and we need to be ready. And those judgments on the earth during the time of tribulation pale in comparison to the great judgment that will come. That is the eternal judgment of all those who reject Christ in hell apart from God forever. So in times of judgment, God is calling for people to express their faith. Sadly, many of these people will will turn away from Him. So now, while your heart is tender, while you're considering the truth of God, turn to Him now. Don't wait until the judgment comes. It may be too late. God is calling people to saving faith when He displays His power. Secondly, God often delays in delivering His people in order to show His mercy. God often delays in delivering His people in order to show His mercy. In Exodus chapter 9, God said, I have allowed you to remain, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, so that you would see that My name is proclaimed in all the earth. Paul quotes this in Romans 9.17, For this reason, Pharaoh, I raised you up to display My power through you. What we should learn from this is that God orchestrates all the events of life 
including the delay in your deliverance in order to show His great power to you and the watching world. I don't know what kind of trial you're going through, what kind of difficulty that you experience every day that has gone on for day after day and maybe year after year. But God delays in delivering you often in order to make His name known, to show you His power and to show the people around His power. And that His power is consistent and His love is consistent with His perfect plan. Your trial and the delay in God delivering you from the trial is a testament to God's power at work. What must have Israel been thinking during this time? Why not? Why would you not just deliver us right away, God? Why, why go through all this trouble? Some of the plagues they felt. Why not just deliver them right away? And God delays in delivering them in order to make His name known. And God is is merciful even in judgment. In Exodus and in Revelation, we see an example of God's mercy. That the Pharaoh has an opportunity once again to escape the plague, and the people who will listen to God's word can't escape the effects of the plague. And God is constantly doing this throughout human history, and even into the tribulation. That God gives opportunity to repent. He delays in destroying he could if he wanted to. Destroy a person as soon as they sin. But He often delays in order to give them time to repent. And the fact that God gives so many opportunity, opportunities to repent is a testament to His worthiness. His worth, not our worth. That even the wickedest of people have ample opportunity to repent. That's the story of the tribulation. That although they continue to raise their fist to God, although they continue to to follow the Antichrist, God gives them opportunity to repent. God allows the wicked to fill up with sinfulness like a grape on a vine ready to burst. And He doesn't pluck that grape until it's time for judgment. In the tribulation, God sends the scorching heat, which is a foretaste of the coming lake of fire. And if those people would only repent then they could avoid a far worse judgment. Don't you see that we deserve the full measure of God's wrath because of our sin? God is perfectly holy. And because we sin against the perfectly holy God, we're not sinning against another human being only. We're not sinning against another, a, a great official in our land when we sin. We're sinning against the God of the universe. And yet, as Christians, God chooses to pour out on us, nothing but His mercy. Listen to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No wrath. No punishment. All the punishment that we deserved was taking, taken upon Christ at the cross. And so the thought of God delaying in the trials that we face actually serve as a test for us. How will we respond when things are taken away from us? How will we respond when God delays in removing this trial? I hope you recognize that, that throughout our life, God gives opportunity to repent. God shows mercy in judgment. But I, but I hope you also recognize 
that in the eternal judgment, God shows no mercy. That's the worst part about hell. There is no mercy. All of His wrath will be poured out on those who reject, who have rejected Christ. There will not be a time where God will say, well, I'll give you one more final opportunity. And that's why these judgments during our lifetime, during the lifetime of these who who we're reading about in Scripture and during the tribulation are so critical for us to understand. Because they're a foretaste of what God will do in fuller measure, in fullest measure. There will be no mercy in hell. God will remove His His pleasure, His His mercy, His His uh, His sovereign grace, His common grace from all all those people. And they will experience the just wrath of God for their sin for all of eternity. There'll be no vacations in hell. There'll be no times when the torment goes away. It will always be there. There will no there will be no time in which it ends. It doesn't just lead to annihilation. That is, they finally just go out of existence. Hell is forever, friends. And if you haven't turned to Jesus Christ, you need to turn to Him today. God's showing of His just uh, judgment on the earth is actually a sign of mercy for us and an opportunity for us to repent. Thirdly, the most terrifying news for the unbeliever is that God is near. The most terrifying news for the unbeliever is that God is near. Here in Exodus, God was making it clear that He is not distant. He is not unconcerned. He's not like the the God of the deists who just kind of sets the world in motion and then backs up and doesn't do anything. That's not our God. That's not the God of the universe. No, He's a God who is near. He knows about the earth. He is the God of the earth. And He judges those who who uh, oppose Him. He is high and lifted up, yes, but He is also personal and near. And while that may be a comfort for us, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, the fact that God is near is terrifying for an unbeliever. The fact that God actually knows what they're doing, the fact that God actually has power over them is terrifying for the unbeliever if they are to think about it. And if we think about it in terms of hell, there is a sense in which they are removed from the presence of God forever. But there's also a sense in which they are in the presence of God forever under His mighty wrath. And they will never be able to to go away from it. Finally, the most pleasant thought for the believer is that God is near. The most pleasant thought for the believer is that God is near. Don't ever take that for granted. Consider God's vastness and your smallness. David says it this way in Psalm 8, When I gaze into the night sky and see the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would care for him? Christians, don't ever tire of learning of God's superiority in the universe and our smallness. And the clearest way that God shows that He is near, the, the clearest way that God has revealed Himself to be near is at the cross. He sent Christ to earth to become a man so that He could live among us and eventually give His life for us. But now we know that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And yet, Christ has not left us here alone. He remains with us in the person of the Holy Spirit 
Holy Spirit is our down payment of eternal fellowship and there is no greater thought for us as a Christian than to know that God is near. That He lives within us and among us and He communicates to our spirits that we are the children of God. And so while this message of judgment may be terrifying in some ways, it's also a message of great hope for us. That God has spared us from this wrath to come. The wrath Uh, the judgment that this judgment points to, the greater judgment, the great white throne judgment that results in eternal punishment, we're spared from that because of Christ, because of God's nearness to us. Let's pray. Father, who are we that You would ever consider us, that You would ever even think of us? considering how great You are and how undeserving we are of Your mercy, considering how deserving we are of Your judgment, we, we wonder at Your grace. We wonder at, at, at Your nearness to us. And Lord, we, we plead with those who don't know Christ to see the realities of Your eternal judgment and to also recognize the great offer that's given of salvation. And I pray that there, if, if there is someone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who doesn't know for sure where they will end up after they die, that they would make that certain today. And Lord, I pray for us, the rest of us as Christians, that we would acknowledge Your power, see Your superiority in all of creation, and turn to You for grace, and turn away from our sins constantly and be turning to You in faith to draw others out from the flames. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.